when we do this inner work, when we change our attachment to ourselves, it changes the attachment interpersonally. And when that attachment changes, it actually impacts our cultural body. And when our cultural body has a healthier attachment, then our democracy functions better. How you lead yourself impacts how you lead others. And how you lead yourself and others has a ripple effect in all the spaces you live and work. It really is that simple and that important. Doing your own inner work changes how you connect with yourself and how you show up in your business and in the world. Unaddressed pain from difficult life experiences and traumas rob us of our capacity for connection. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. The ripple effect of disconnection takes us out of our innate ability to genuinely care about the well-being of others. We become hyper-focused on our own safety, sometimes at extreme cost to others. Trauma limits our capacity to care for and connect with others, let alone ourselves. Both individual and collective traumas perpetuate disconnection in all the spaces we live and work in. Unaddressed burdens of trauma impact how you make decisions on everything from parenting to public policy. When we make decisions based on fear and self-protection, we end up generating more fear and dehumanize the people we lead. This is weighing us down individually and collectively. In my recent Unburdened Leader conversation with State Representative Jennifer Confers, she reminded us of the exhaustion and the challenges she faces trying to push back on these collective burdens that have shown up in the laws in Iowa. What kept her going when she was ready to give in and tap out? Her ability to connect with the stories and the needs of each person in her district. In order to connect with others and their stories, you have to connect with your own story first. So all of that disconnection stems from Chaba makes it harder to lead well. It makes it harder to tolerate the nuance of different perspectives or to find common ground with those whose stories are different from yours. When we're so disconnected from our own experiences, it's near impossible to connect with each other in a way that makes our society better and more just. Our unaddressed trauma generates very real consequences in our communities. We're seeing spikes in mass shootings, public policy pass that emboldens hatred over humanity, surges in racial violence and hate crimes, increases in physical and mental health struggles, and more and more households are food insecure and uninsured. As my guest today wisely stated, we have forgotten how to be human with each other. Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza is a trans queer activist, Latinx scholar, and a public theologian. They are the founder of Activist Theology Project and the author of Activist Theology and their forthcoming book, Body Becoming. Now listen to how Dr. Robin clearly and succinctly describes supremacy culture and why it is so essential for us to understand how it impacts how we lead and connect. Pay attention to how Dr. Robin talks about the importance of table fellowship 
and how this is a powerful leadership practice for us all. And listen to how Dr. Robin explains their concerns with cancel culture and call-out culture and what needs to happen instead to foster more accountability and meaningful change. All right, folks, fasten your seatbelts for some truth bombs that will be delivered with immense clarity and love as I welcome Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Hello, Dr. Robin. I am so excited to have this conversation with you today. Hello there. I'm really happy to be here and even more thrilled that we can actually see each other instead of I'm just talking into a microphone, but I'm actually talking to a human. I love that. I know it's something so important to me. It helps me connect in these conversations. I often will watch my guests and read the nonverbals and then tell the audience about it. It's yeah. an occupational hazard. So often uh, what we often do on the show is we start off and go a little deep. <laughs> we kick it off deep. And I want to take you back in time, uh, back to August 2017 okay. in Charlottesville, Virginia. You were protesting that day in response to the white supremacist Unite the Right rally convening in that city, and you eventually needed to be evacuated. I'd love for you to walk us through that day and tell us what we would have seen if we were standing with you on that street corner in downtown Charlottesville. Well, you would see me on the on the corner of Second and Water Streets, and you would see me in a pair of khaki shorts, cargo shorts with my clergy collar shirt that is sleeveless and so you could see my tattoos and you could see me wearing a red stole that says black lives matter in a, in this like bright yellow patch with a resistance fist on one side of the sole and the black lives matter on the other and and i think you would also see a sort of collective disillusionment at what was happening that you would see what felt like millions of alt-right people all shapes and sizes all white you would see them descend on this corner and then we would have to hustle into a fenced area where the state police stood because violence broke out and then we would be there together while cans of concrete and cans of urine and other bodily fluids were lobbed in our direction as a means to hurt i think us who were standing there in this fenced in area it was actually the media place the the disillusionment that i that i talk about is I never thought that I would see regressive politics in my lifetime. And so there's this mix of, oh my God, what in the hell do we do? And this sort of disillusionment of like, oh my God, this is happening. Mm. Which makes for a really confusing time to be in public space. Because you don't know where to go. You don't know who's safe. You know, the, the following days I attended uh, a public memorial service for Heather Heyer. And the person I was with 
actually had me sit on the inside and then she would sit on the outside because, you know, I'm visibly maybe antagonistic to the Unite the Right people. And so for a safety measure and security measure, I sat on the inside and my friends sat on the outside. And again, another sort of high stake collective disillusionment moment of like, oh my God, we're here. I say it that way because I can't really take you back there because as we know, so much has happened since then and so much continues to accelerate in the vein of supremacy culture, which is the way we talk about it at the Activist Theology Project. It's not just white-bodied supremacy. It's supremacy culture. It's it's a it, it, it's a justice emergency. It's a moral emergency, and so we like to call it supremacy culture. But that place, second in water, I could feel the quality of of presence of what evil might feel like. And I don't say no. that lightly. I'm not calling people evil, but the ways that we behave toward each other, there was a quality, there was a felt sense of a presence of evil. And not to be binary or black and white, but I think that if we do the proper inner work, we can feel the quality presence of virtue or good and we can feel the quality of what is unvirtuous or perhaps evil and that is really what i took away from that time being in charlottesville and being evacuated and having our hotel compromised mm -hmm. and being threatened by white supremacists i still live with the ptsd I've been stopped by the state police and asked to lift up my clothes and to prove that I don't have a weapon. I've been asked if I'm a terrorist. And, and I, and I say, I, I tell that story to say, you know, the work that many of us are doing causes so much emotional harm and psychic harm when we are just trying to sow seeds of goodness. So if I hear you correctly, there's a few things I want to circle back on. Thank you for sharing that. Wow, I feel like I just went back in time with you. I feel that in my body. Doing the work to help make this world a better place, if I'm hearing you correctly, puts you in harm and can cause harm to those trying to bridge peace and to human create a, a culture that's more humanizing. Just that work itself can cause a lot of harm to those showing up. Yeah. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, yeah. I think you are. And you also talked about regressive politics. Can you unpack what you mean by that? I'm in my mid forties. I just had my Obama birthday last year. We're skipping over 45. We're not going to name that birthday. Just it's going to be my 45th birthday. But so, <laughs> so I say that, say I'm in my mid 40s. And, 
And I never thought, so I'm, I'm a trans, queer, Latinx. I never thought that I would see human behavior roll backwards in my lifetime. Mm. This is the illusion of progressivism. It's a kind of imperial optimism. And we're all sort of socialized into this imperial optimism. And so when I was confronted with regressive politics, certainly in the election, in the 2016 election, but then for the next four years, and even now, we're sort of seeing the undercurrent of the past four years, that I never thought that I would I, that I would literally be teaching people, my students at Duke, church community when I preach or on podcasts, that treating people like we want to be treated is just a fundamental human value. And the fact that that is most of the conversations that I have with people Mm. Not, I'm not talking about being LGBT positive. I'm not talking about making sure that everybody has their particular rights. I'm just talking about how do we treat each other? Mm. That's what I mean by regressive politics. We don't know how to be human with one another. Dang. You alluded to that a little bit that when we, if I heard you correctly, when we do the inner work, we can pick up on the sense of good and virtue and also evil and darkness. That that really stood out to me because when we do the inner work, we're going to feel. We're not mm -hmm. going to be shut down. We're not going right. to be armored up and protected. And, it, you know, which is, quote unquote, safer but it's also where dehumanizing happens. Mm -hmm. So that inner work allows us to feel better, but also we're going to feel the darkness more deeply too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't like using that platonic language of good, bad, evil, virtue, dark okay. light, but it, but it, it's accessible to people. Um, uh, what do you prefer to use? Well, well, there, I, I don't know that there is language that I would, that I would prefer to use, but it's, it, I, I know that that, I know that, that language is troublesome, right? Because sure. often when we, when we say dark uh, uh, or dirty, yeah. we're alluding to people with dark skin and, and I'm not trying to perpetuate that kind of stereotype, but I, I do think that, you know, there was a cloud that descended over over me in 20 in august of 2017 and that cloud felt very stifling and and to figure out how to build relationships out of a place of feeling stifled and feeling like you could feel evil is really hard work to do mm. I'm going back to, I used to work in politics and even while I was still in undergrad and here listening to you talk, I went to a rally that was with the other candidate that I was 
working against. And we were supposed to go in there, me and another college buddy, and we were supposed to ask a question to one of the surrogates in front of this huge room. And just what you described, there was this sense that my whole nervous system almost shut down and I could feel my throat tighten. It was like a, a fight or flight system. And you see, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a spicy redhead. I'm like, let's, I love getting scrappy and I, I love a, a, a lively conversation. And especially <laughs> at that age back in the day, probably with less, a uh, little, little too much abandon maybe. Yeah. But, but I remember that moment that I was getting ready to raise my hand and I literally just felt what you described. It just, you just brought me back in time to that moment where it was, it, this isn't okay. This isn't safe. Yeah. And I remember there were people around us that started to look at us and recognize, oh, we weren't quote unquote with them. Right. And it started to feel like I was not physically safe, let alone mm-hmm. emotionally safe. Mm-hmm. And that, gosh, I hadn't thought about that for a while. The word that came to mind for me was almost oppressive. Mm-hmm. This a spirit of oppression that came into. So when I thinking about this time and realized what well, we're coming up almost on the four year anniversary of this event, I remember that because I was actually running a workshop that weekend around shame resilience of all mm-hmm. things. And we're unpacking this in the workshop because it was happening over that. And of this deadly gathering. And I'm curious what comes up for you as you reflect on that event today. And what would the old you from four years ago, standing on that street corner say to you today? You know, I was there holding public witness mm. and, you know, I think that I would tell the younger me and maybe the younger me would tell the older me, we've still got work to do. Mm. And I think that the ways in which harm has been accelerated against the least of these continues to remind me we've got work to do. And so I think, I think we, my younger self and my older self would be a unanimous voice singing a refrain of, We've got to continue to get our hands dirty with people, with, with, with the messy work of being human with one another. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you said. We've forgotten what, how to be human with each other. What does it mean to be human with each other? Well, I think that one of the things that it means is having an ethics of engagement, social media. I I tell people, the longest abusive relationship I've ever had is with social media and it's going on 15 years (laughs) and it's because there's no ethics of engagement. Dang. And I want to, I want to help people have an ethics of engagement. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that each of us believes or says, but we do need some kind of container to engage with one another. We are, we are so brutally polarized. We mm. we don't know how to engage with one another. And so my work as a public theologian, as a professor, as a clergy person, is to invite people into a framework of having an ethics of engagement that prioritizes relationships. We, we don't know what it means to love our neighbor. And let's just use the mask as an example. 
wearing a mask is me loving my neighbor. Wearing a mask is not political. Wearing a mask isn't doesn't mean I believe in science, though I do believe in science. Wearing a mask is just a pragmatic way to show love to your neighbor. And we've got people here in Tennessee who try their damnedest to say that to wear a mask is a political act. And I want to say wearing a mask is just being kind and human and showing love for your neighbor. That's a big, big bridge. It's a big on-ramp between politicizing the mask and being kind and loving your neighbor. Yeah. Wow. You know, what's, you bring up social media and <laughs> your longstanding uh, relationship with it, toxic relationship with it. I, I will say that I found that profound from you because you're, I, I was just talking to someone about your feed and how you communicate that you can, I can read something that you write and I feel deeply convicted and loved mm. when I read that. And that is holy that it sticks with and and it's and it's so rare Mm. so i i mean if that's still a struggle how you maintain that you offer that respite at least i know for me but i suspect for many and i'm really going to be holding to this ethics of engagement and i want to talk more about but i want to start digging into what having you share with us what activist theology is this your body of work and i'd love for you to share what it is and why is it important for leaders well, Activist Theology is a book that I wrote, and it is it is my body of scholarship, and I launched my scholarship as a collaborative project. So Activist Theology is a book. It's also a podcast, the Activist Theology Podcast. It's also a project, the Activist Theology Project. And, and basically, the work is, how do we live out our values? How do we live out our politics? How do we live out our theology? We, we all have theology. Buying where you buy your coffee is a theological act, and all theology is ethics, right? What we think about the divine or God or spirit shows up in our actions, it's ethics. So, the project is rooted in sort of public theology initiatives, it's grounded in an ethics of incojunto, of fostering togetherness. There's no real English equivalent to that word incojunto, which is a Spanish Spanish phrase. The closest equivalent is togetherness or being together. And that's what we're trying to do. We are trying to create conditions through public theology initiatives to build a culture of togetherness. So... Building a culture of togetherness, what does that look like in practice, whether it's in a family, in a a faith community, in a corporation? Well, I'm a big believer of table fellowship. That's how how I grew up thinking about it. And table, Uh, table fellowship could be a roasted chicken and greens and cornbread. Or it could just be having tea with one another. But we need we need more table fellowship from our from down from the family to corporate America. Because both places 
do not have conditions for togetherness. Why? Because supremacy culture creates dissociative patterns of disconnection and the reality of disassociation, psychologically speaking. Well, okay. So my brain goes to my clinical training and thinking, okay, the dissociative protectors come up when we are not safe, when there's danger sensed. Right. And so then I, then my brain goes to that. That's there because connection is dangerous. Connection is a threat. So how from, how does your framework, how will that help us move through and help those dissociative protectors relax so we can experience more table fellowship, much needed table fellowship. It's through healthy attachments. Mm -hmm. What supremacy yeah. culture does is create insecure attachments, which then shows up in our behavior and our inability to be together. But if we can foster healthy attachments instead of anxious, insecure attachments or just insecure attachments, we can build a culture of togetherness, but, 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 but we have to learn how to be human with one another, and that being human with one another requires healthy attachments. So some of this might not feel theological or ethical, but I think it's deeply theological and ethical. I'm a person who loves uh, the psychological realm, and I think there is a lot of overlap between how we think religiously or spiritually and what is happening in the psyche. And so, yes. and so we, yes. are, we are trying to steward theories of healthy attachment through things like embodiment and somatic work, through things, the conversation or the intersection between conversation and contemplation. And, and each of these iterations, right, it's iterative, iterative and emergent. And each of these iterations help foster healthy attachments. Yeah, so my brain's going, it's this dance of our own inner work, but also collective work. Mm -hmm. And I see them, it, it's a dance. Sometimes we need to have seasons of doing our own work so we can have increase our bandwidth to be human with right. the collective. And yet when the collective can surround us, when we're not at our best and give witness and love us, then that can also help those dissociative protectors relax too. It's an, right. it's personal and definitely not formulaic. <laughs> yeah, and, but I mean, and the, the inner work, it, it changes the outer work, right? So I just finished a book. Totally. I've just finished a book on bodies, embodiment, and democracy. And my whole thesis is when, when we do this inner work, when we change our attachment to ourselves, it changes the attachment interpersonally. And when that attachment changes, it actually impacts our cultural body. And when our cultural body has a healthier attachment, then our democracy functions better. And you did you say you just finished writing this book or is it yeah. something you read? No, I just I just turned in the manuscript oh. to the publisher. Oh con congratulations. It, oh, it'll be I out next excited. year. That's going to be powerful. I, I mean, I love the intersection of faith and psychology and and culture. I think yeah. this that's and we're so much of what we lived through the last year brought a lot of that up to the surface. What would you say are the stakes if we do not choose an active the activist theology mindset in how we lead? What are the stakes if we don't do that? 
I think we become paralyzed in our inaction. The whole point of activist mm -hmm. theology is to mobilize people into getting their hands dirty, whatever that might look like. That might look like, I mean, for, for us, for my partner and me, it looks like helping out with the folks who are unhoused in Nashville. Because I think a house is a fundamental human right. You know, I keep you, you mentioned this phrase a couple of times, getting our hands dirty. And and I, I notice it going through my my brain going, yeah, absolutely. But then when I check myself, I know that it's a lot more challenging to get my hands dirty. And, and it really it sounds like for you, getting your hands dirty is aligned to your core values. And we don't have to do it all. <laughs> We don't have to save the world, but it's doing something that's uncomfortable or inconvenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can, can you unpack this a little bit more, this getting our hands dirty process and not just talking about it in a nice phrase, but what does it look like for me to get my hands dirty? Yeah. So let me also say you make a good point. Like not everyone is going to want to go to a protest. Not not everyone's personality is designed to go to a protest. Not, not everyone will want to work with the marginalized people that are on the streets. I get that. But can, but can we come together and imagine what our roles are in getting our hands dirty? Because for some people, getting our hands dirty might be that disruptive giver who wants to give to Open Table Nashville or the Activist Theology Project. They want to give to support. I think that's getting your hands dirty. For some people, it will be wanting to go out on the streets as I drive the van around collecting people to get them into a shelter. That might be a version of getting your hands dirty. For other people, it might be, hey, listen to this podcast episode where, where these folks are talking about what we can do to create a better world. I, I think there are lots of ways to get our hands dirty. And so for me, as the founder of the Activist Theology Project, I am already thinking about, okay, who can step in when I can't be there? And I've already started those conversations with an individual here in Nashville. When I can't be present for ATP, who is the leader who has the skill to step in. Hmm. That's that's getting your hands dirty sort of on an organizational level. Right. It's not all about one person. It has to be. Yeah, that's I, I totally I appreciate that. And I'm thinking too this contrast of getting my hands dirty to times when I'm paralyzed. Like hmm. so if I don't, you know, that's kind of what you had talked about of yeah. the stake is if I don't have an act activist theology mindset, then I'll be paralyzed and I won't take action Right. versus taking action, even small actions. I think that that to me feels good versus is like where scarcity and shame can come in and say, you're not doing enough or that's not good enough or has enough reach. It's what, what action am I taking today? Right. You know, or am I in a place of feeling paralyzed and what do I need to do to help address that so I can move to action? Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. That's powerful. And, and let me tell you, it takes relationship. Ooh, doesn't ever. And and we don't know how to be in relationship with people. The 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 entirety of Activist Theology Project is 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 not only dedicated to social healing, but is dedicated to fucking helping people have relationships with people. Why are we <laughs> why not... are we so scared of difference? Ooh. Sorry to interrupt, but it just sort of No, it, I love it. 
interrupt away. I, I, but I think that difference is as I think we're afraid of discomfort. Yeah, absolutely. And our, our capacity for discomfort is a theme that keeps coming up in my clinical and in my leadership work. Is well, and, and that, that discomfort, the mm-hmm. root of that is disassociation. Mm, the fear of going to a place of complete shutdown, paralyzation. Right. Feeling, yeah. Holy cow. We, we can write another thesis here. Yeah, this yeah, is awesome. Really Maybe we should so, do that. Okay. Oh my gosh. Don't tempt me. This Because your book and your work has woken me up in both my passion for psychology, but also in my faith. So that this is so powerful. I told you before we started recording, yeah. I've been gushing about your book to anyone who'll listen. And most of that's my husband these days. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, and I keep rereading it. And I really wish I had it 20 years ago when I went to seminary. I'm going to be sending it, the book to some of my colleagues I went to seminary with. And you you wrote about the topic of resilience. And it's a topic that's a buzzword it's in a lot of leadership spaces, but also in a lot of clinical spaces. But you wrote about it in a way that was new to me. So I'd love for you to share how you define resilience and what that looks like in action. Yeah, I mean, as a trans, queer, Latinx, I come to life with some cultural bias. So one one of the biases that I have is we should rest more. It, it Life should not be business as usual. I, I'll never forget when, mm. when, you know, I took off two weeks, the week of Christmas and the week of New Year's. And everyone was booking on my calendar and it was just business as usual. And I had to remind people that we were still living through a global health pandemic and and that I was really panicked about contracting COVID and subsequently dying from it. And that for us to be engaged in work that is sustainable and create runways for resiliency we have to be caring for ourselves, And so mm. for me, resilience is about what is my relationship with myself and what mm. is my relationship to others? So one of the things that I do as a practice of resilience is I take a siesta every day. I, I grew up with a Mexican immigrant woman, spent my summers in Mexico and I learned what it means for the world to shut down for two hours. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful moment. And so for resiliency's sake, I take a siesta every day and it's on my calendar from three to four 30 every day. I siesta. And, and I don't mean I just sit in front of the television and watch television. Nope. I put my phone down on do not disturb. I get in the bed under the covers and I close my <laughs> eyes, I take off my glasses, I close my eyes, and I rest for that for for at least an hour. I rest. Sometimes I fall asleep, sometimes I don't. But literally, I'm just giving myself a breather. Wow. You know, because resilience often is about it's not about not feeling, as I understand it and conceptualize it, it's not about not feeling difficult emotion. It's about how we reset. Mm-hmm. And how quickly reset. And this practice of rest is essential to resilience. And it, I, I appreciate that you're shutting down all tech 
and really just your body has this ritual. I lived in Europe for four years and the grocery stores would shut down usually from 12 to two, um, a little different reason and cultural reason for it. You know, the, you couldn't do laundry during that time. It wasn't appropriate. (laughs) And that felt, I was like irritated. I was like, this is so inefficient. Right. How dare you? I've got things to do. Right. I was very entitled. <laughs> well, but, <laughs> and then but by the end, go ahead. But, but efficiency is one of those pillars of supremacy culture, right? I am learning that. Oh my gosh, I'm learning that efficiency and urgency right. are rooted along with perfectionism. Yep. Oh my gosh, it's hitting me between the eyes on that. So. So yes, and as an Enneagram 3 loving efficiency, yeah. I'm like, I don't want to worship it. I don't want to worship right. that anymore. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm navigating that. So it it terrifies me, though, to take an hour and a half off each day. Mm-hmm. I like, oh my, good for you. I'll be honest. A part of me is like, that's awesome. And I recommend it to everyone. But for me, I'm like, oh, geez, <laughs> well, I, would, I would have to change so much. But if I care about these things, I need to I need to step up those games that step up my game to practice that on a deeper level. So thank you for that. You even, you already referenced this sentence that I I kept rereading in your book and it's all theology is ethics. It took my breath away. (laughs) And I I'd love for you to share, how is this statement different from conventional wisdom around these topics? Oh, I think religious are more interested in right belief <laughs> Gosh, and totally raising my hand right now. Yes, then, then, then sustainable action. Oh my gosh! And so, if if we are at all interested in a holistic spirituality or a relationship with the divine, we have to remember religion. The Latin root for religion is just reconnection. Hmm. And we've turned this term religion, which is about reconnection, into an industrial complex that that fortifies supremacy culture. And so as a theologian, as an ethicist, as a clergy person, I'm more interested in helping people connect with themselves so that they can, can connect with the world. And sometimes that means inviting people just to go hug a tree. And I, I'm not trying to be funny when Lit- I say that. Like, literally, go literally, literally go touch a tree and hug it. You know why? No, because it's co-regulation. Oh, you're right. And and one of the things that we need right now are practices yes. that help us co-regulate in sustainable ways. That's why all theology is ethics. Well, you talked about the beginning of our conversation about where we buy coffee is theology. Can you can you expand a little bit on that? So when I was on faculty in Berkeley prior to the 2016 election, I found a coffee shop around the corner from my therapist's apartment. Or not apartment, office. And I just got to know them. I would go there every Wednesday at about 930. I'd get my big cup of coffee and I loved the coffee. And I finally asked, like, where do you get your coffee? What's the story here? And they said, oh, we're a coffee cooperative and and we pay our coffee farmers a living wage. And I was like, really? And then when I moved to to Tennessee, I was like, 
I love their coffee and I, I want, I want to make an ethical choice around coffee. I, I don't want to buy from Whole Foods. I don't want to buy from Starbucks. So they have a coffee CSA community supported mm. agriculture and it's and all the money goes to the farmers so every month we get two pounds of this really rich coffee and so i feel really good about about that and it's like carbon neutral shipping and so i'm not adding more supremacy to my consumption and so i feel good about that and and when I say to people, like, are you going to your neighborhood coffee store or are you buying from a corporate co- conglomerate like like Starbucks? Because that matters. Yeah, we have a lot of power yeah. in our actions. Yeah, we have a lot of power in our actions. I want to shift gears. I've been really looking forward to your answer to this question. And in, in a culture of canceling and calling in, calling up, and ideally to me, accountability. How can we do accountability better? And what are the stakes if we don't? Well, we can do accountability better by being in relationship with one another. So much of our calling in, calling out, and canceling is not done from a place of relationship. Hmm. And... And we really need to be in relationship with people to to have these accountability measures in place. And that's the first thing I would say. We can do accountability better if we learn to be in relationship with one another. And maybe accountability would would look really different if we were in relationship with one another. You're absolutely right. The physics of accountability means being in relationship not only with others but also with ourselves Mm -hmm. this is the theme i'm picking up in this conversation it's not rocket science and it's foundational but it's the rocket science is the actual practice of it and i you're right we've forgotten how to be human with each other and I, i think there's a lot of nuance on there to be honest i i i don't think this is cut and dry i think it's a messy practice but I hear from so many people who want to be bold and brave and change how they've seen the world and change how they engage with those that they lead or those in their family or community, but are afraid of the backlash if they make a mistake. Right. And and I think it's two prong is they don't they're worried how they're going to be seen. They can't tolerate any feedback. So that's one part of it. But the other part is sometimes the feedback is so toxic, it takes them out. And there's like these, yeah, there's a polarization polarization around that. The, The thing that we need to remember is that relationships only move at the pace of trust. Oof, gosh. (laughs) you're like dropping these nuggets today. Relationship only moves. Can you say that again? Relationship. Relationships only move at the pace of trust. Yeah. How do you build trust? Transparency, honesty, and vulnerability. (laughs) And, and, And to really be seen. And those three things create conditions for intimacy. And when there is intimacy, there is trust. And when there is trust, there is healthy attachment. 
And I'm thinking about a lot of people and systems that hold power that are that would terrify them right. to shift. That'd be a lot of change. Yes. That would be a lot of change that would that would shake things up. Yeah. And, and we're seeing the fight almost, li- not almost literally to the death to maintain yeah. how we've been doing things. Because to be in relationship is to release power over. Right. Right. Not only just others, but I think I see this with leaders over themselves. I want to power over my shame and power over my trauma. I want to power over. They can only do it for so long. Right. It's not sustainable, but. Oh, trust. You know, you said what builds trust, transparency, vulnerability, and honesty. honesty. Oh, gosh. I think that's so I'm just thinking this through because I'm I'm just rumbling with do we really do so many people? How much do we know who we really are? You know, that you you write a lot about identity. Yeah. And And the traps of how we talk about ourselves. And, and this, this got me thinking as I was reading, reading your work that I wonder if we know more who we think we should be and, you know, to be safe right. versus who we really are. I wonder if you can tell us about your journey with identity. Well, I try not to make identity into an ideology. You know, we are shaped by stories. And if there's anything that is true about my identity is that it's a storied identity. And I think we forget that. We forget that we're shaped by stories. We're shaped by other people. We're shaped by living texts. And my identity has been shaped by a number of people. And my identity is more than transgender. It's more than queer. It's more than Latinx. It is an identity that is cascading with story. It's not stable. It's it's not a monolith. It's a multiplicity. And I think we forget that. Okay, I get this, and I'm with you. And I'm. I can also hear people saying, "What does that mean? That that my identity is a story, and that it's multiplicity." I like I said, I'm tra- I'm totally tracking with mm-hmm. you. I agree with you, but I I know this is hard for people to grapple with. How would you break that down? And if we're really how we view each other, how we view ourselves, not just in like you said, an ideology versus story. I, I think we truncate people's existence into <laughs> into the last foolish thing they said. And then Oh gosh. And then we just sort of locate them as as a foolish person. That's their identity. And and part of this is because again, we don't know how to be in relationship with people and so we truncate them. And what I want to invite people to do is unfurl with one another and get to know each other's stories so that you can experience the multiplicity of each other. And this is a sarcastic statement, but Dr. Robin, that's not efficient. <laughs> We've got things to do. Right. I don't have time for all these details. Yeah. I, we, got, we got work to do and places to go and laundry to do. What do you mean unfurl? <laughs> I don't have time. I could hear this in my own system and I definitely have heard it from others. <laughs> How do you respond? <laughs> well, my invitation is, can we create some spaciousness mm. and put a bookmark in the laundry or a bookmark in the dishes? I mean, 
my partner and I have been at home working from home for the past year and a half and you know, we're doing everything multiple times a day. And we finally got to the to the place of like, okay, the dishes can wait. Let's just watch, sit down and watch a show. We've been working mm-hmm. all day and and we work with people, so you know that that can be exhausting if you're doing that back to back. So we say, okay, let's just take a break. Leave the dishes for tomorrow. Let's unfurl. And that creates spaciousness. Again, tracking with you, and I feel my soul longing for more of that. And I have been creating more of that over the last few years. And last year ushered in that to the whole next level. And I'm grateful for it. What I notice when I create more space is it also then brings up other things that need my attention Mm -hmm. that maybe, or not maybe, that are often not pleasant or comfortable. I can't dissociate mm-hmm. when I have space. Right. I can't disconnect or numb. Right. And that's a good thing in theory, but in practice, oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's labor intensive. I, I'm not I'm not saying this is easy work, but this is really the work mm-hmm. we need to be invested in if we're going to create the kind of world we long to inhabit. Yeah. If we're going to create the world we long to inhabit. We literally have to slow down. Yes. Which is counterintuitive. Yes. We don't have to build and create and be led by FOMO. Right. It's It takes a while to come down, though, off of that tyranny of the urgent mm-hmm. and to rewire the thinking of is... Am I doing this because I believe it or because I've co- I've I've embodied what everyone else thinks I should do yeah. and what everyone else's things or culture says is right. And that space allows time for story then mm-hmm. and to really get to know. Yeah. Because you're you're right. Because when I think of the most important people in my life, and even folks, I mean, even reading your book, you're a beautiful writer and storyteller. And I've connected to aspects of who you are through the stories that you wrote in that book. Yeah. I and that allowed space. I had to sit down and read. Mm-hmm. I'm connecting the dots here. School is in session here on the Unburdened Leader podcast. So I, I had sent you an email when I a DM in Instagram. Yep. It was the, a non toxic experience yep. in that space. Yep. And I, I don't know if you know, but you brought me to tears in the best of ways because you had. I, I was just thanking you for sharing that you had re- you recently shared that you were diagnosed on the autism spectrum. And I, I thanked you for you talking about it and how you spoke about it, because that is something that's dear to me as my oldest daughter who's turning 13 next week. Oh. Holy cow. And your response was so, I felt so witnessed and so cared for in your response and affirmed. I hadn't felt like that in my nine-year journey. So thank you for that. And I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit about what led you to get to pursuing getting assessed um, for for autism? Yeah, my former partner worked with kids with autism in a research setting, and I didn't know much about autism. And I looked up the symptoms, and I was like, "Oh, these really resonate with me." Hmm. I wonder. If, I wonder <laughs> if that's me. And I asked my former partner, and she was like, "No, you're too smart. You're you're not autistic." Oh, interesting. So I said, okay, all right, well, and I, I went along and, and my partner and I at the time separated and later divorced. And 
And then I was in Cuba with uh, a comrade and I missed all the social cues and driving back in the car. My, my colleague said, you might want to see how people with autism deal with social settings. And I was offended. I was like, well, Oh, you think I have autism? And we actually got into quite the argument about it. And, and then last year, I was driving with my current partner, Aaron, who I talk a lot about on social media. I was, I was, we were driving to pick up my car and I said, we were having one of those relationship talks. And, and I said, well, you know, when I was in Cuba, Alba thought that maybe I had autism, you know, because I missed all the social cues. What do you think about that? Well, my partner had already been thinking about that. And she was like, yeah, you know, may- maybe that's true. What What do you think about that? I was like, well, I, you know, it's possible. So then I, I read the, I read the symptoms again. I was like, oh, these like really resonate with me. So I sent the symptoms to my partner. I was like, these really resonate with me. Uh, what do you think? She was like, yeah, let's talk about when we get home. So got home and ended up reaching out to a friend of mine, Mike McCarg, who is also on the autism spectrum. And I reached out to him and I was like, I think this could be true for me. What was your process? And he was like, oh, I thought you were on the spectrum because I get along with people who are on the spectrum. And, <laughs> and so he sent me a couple of the assessment tools that he did that are like self-assessments and I scored as being on the spectrum. And then he was like, and, and, and then I went into do official testing. So I reached out to another friend of mine, Hillary McBride, who is a, a psychotherapist. And, mm-hmm. and I said, I, I think this is true for me. Do you, do you have someone that you'd recommend in Tennessee? She was like, Oh, this makes perfect sense. I thought, I thought this was already true for you, by by the way you talked about your relationship with your body. And I was like, Oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe we're onto something here. And so then I, I contacted the therapist here in the Nashville area. She was very kind and we, we did all the testing and the therapy and she was like, you, you're, you're, you are what would be called Asperger's, but that went away and it's just autism spectrum disorder. And so that was my journey. And it just made a lot of sense, uh, how I do things. I, I have some sensory issues like with lights. I keep the lights off most of the time, unless I need them. You know, I can only feel my body when someone is hugging me, for example, or touching me. So I, my doctor thinks it's good for me to get massages so I can have a relationship with my body. So that that's my journey in a nutshell. I mean, obviously, obviously I'm gifted intellectually. I was in gifted and talented classes in school, but you know, I, I'm, I'm so high functioning that I admit I, I didn't get flagged, you know, and I, and I had to mask a lot in higher education. So. Yes. Masking is something I'm noticing even in my daughter. And we're really working on that for her to not be who she thinks we want her to be, but to show up. But I mean, teenager. So I'm just planting the seeds right now. How has this new information impacted how you see yourself? Well, I've always thought it was a little bit weird. Um, And I'm trying not to like pathologize myself. But, you know, like we're unique people. We are, 
we are who we are, you know. I, I try not to let it impact uh, me too much, but I'm sure that I'm sure that there's. But I try just to name it when it happens without it letting letting it impact me negatively. So, are parts of you not excited about this data? Is that is that what I'm picking up? It's like almost an inner conflict, or is it just the feeling? the stigma or as you said, discrimination from others that that's tapping into. Well, I, I feel the stigma and I also want to be an advocate and I, I have a lot of colleagues whose children are nonverbal and, and so sometimes, sometimes I have like survivor's guilt, you know, like Mm. I I'm, I'm functioning and I'm verbal, but my brain works differently. So I just try to help as much as I can. But I think the information, it it makes sense. Um, and I mean, I'm excited insofar that I can help people, you know, put a face to autism. Mm-hmm. And my, my, my daughter's really rumbled with it. We made the decision just to let her know as soon as we know that, hey, this is a part of your nervous system, part of your story. So we want you to know so you can best care for yourself mm-hmm. and speak your needs. And she's only now just, but it's, it's, she was very ashamed, very fearful that she would be misunderstood, that she would get bullied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really, this, this journey has brought me to kind of differentiate the important, the powerful difference between um, awareness mm. and, and acceptance, which she has received so much in our community but where it's it's it ends is that the inclusion, mm-hmm. you know, the the invites to parties or to play dates or to to hang out. We we're pursuing that more than she is pursued, and I think that is what's heavy mm-hmm. and what I'm realizing. Wow, and that's that piece of being human with each other. You know, getting our hands dirty and creating space for uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing that. I'd love to wrap up our conversation, bringing it back to something we touched on a little bit today, but you wrote this on your social media feed that thinking must be a collective act if we're going to build networks of trust. And we unpacked the anatomy of trust from your lens. And I would love to have you share with us what does thinking as a collective act look like as we want to make the world one that is more human? Well, I think it's what we've done today. We have mm. relied on story and memory and past traumas to help create conditions for empathy and kindness and a new imagination. And that's collective work. So I think we've modeled it here. I think we need to be doing more of this work. We need to bring you know, church academy movements, the corporate world into closer proximity so that we can model for each other what thinking collectively looks like so that we can have more empathy, more kindness, more generosity in proximity, not just as a, Mm. not just as a thought. Proximity really is an important ingredient to this Mm -hmm. work, huh? Yeah. It's been particularly difficult after 2020, but, but I think, you know, yes. Definitely. Thank you. I feel like we could talk for quite a while. I know my soul would love to. I am honored 
for this conference to have had this conversation today. I I have a I'm gonna go for a nice long walk to let it integrate versus jumping back into work to honor Great. this time. Great. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and your important work? So I'm on Instagram at irobin, that's the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N, Instagram and Twitter. And then my collaborative project is the Activist Theology Project, and that is activisttheology.com. And just remember, activist and theology share a T. And we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Activist Theology. Wonderful. And I'll make sure to click links uh, in our show notes along with how people can get your book. Well. Thank you again for your time today, Dr. Robin. It's an honor to have had this conversation and to get to know you a little bit more. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Robin reminds us that when we remember how to be human with each other, we can create more peaceful, more equitable, and more just communities. So how do we remember how to be human, especially when it can be so easy to see others as the enemy? We keep fighting for our own humanity and the humanity of others. We tell our own stories and we listen to the stories of others. We address the trauma that keeps us from connecting. That's why I do the work I do. And that's my vision for how unburdened leaders can change the world. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. You do not mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If you want to help support this show, please subscribe, download, and also share with someone you think may appreciate this episode. And if you particularly value this episode, I'd be honored if you left a review. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.